Well, good morning. Um, it is a privilege to be here. Um, in so many ways, you know, we've looked forward to this day. Uh, it has been my heart all along um, to make sure we celebrate uh, the Lord, um, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Father of Spirit, um, and not any one person or any one thing. Um, we don't stand here today because of anything we've done, but because of what God's done. And so I hope that um, that has come through clearly on the videos and um, today's text. We're just going to do um, what we would normally do. We're going to exposit the Word of God and um, hopefully hear from Him. Um, I am mindful that um, you know things are always a little bit odd. We've had um, a few disruptions this morning that were unexpected, and um, Israel is in the midst of um, they've declared war um, on Hamas, I guess, and so. Um, life is always interesting um, and God is faithful we know that I know many of you are praying for the Denton family and we appreciate that and I had an opportunity to spend some time with Gary and the boys last night and they're doing as well as can be expected so it's just I'm a little bit heavy hearted as we begin this and um, just ask that you pray for my clarity and, and uh, uh, the ability, ability to just put it all aside for the moment um, so that we can study the Word of God together. And so um, we do want to turn um, to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We come to a very familiar text, um, God's kind of revelation to Samuel. In all honesty, Old Testament salvation looks a lot different than New Testament salvation, but somewhere in these 14 verses, I believe Samuel comes to a personal relationship um, with the Lord. And so uh, we'll see it in that way as well. From a big picture perspective, though, the time period of the judges in Israel um, lasted approximately 350 years. We've previously looked at a few verses that kind of describe this time period or, or certainly the end of this period um, pretty well. Um, judges 17 and 6, uh, Judges 21 25 are mirror image verses. In those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, and then we see, I believe, a very clear description of this moment in time in today's passage, too. In the back half of the very first verse, it says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Um, the, the New English translation, I, I think, even maybe boils it down a bit clearer. It says, Word from the Lord was rare in those days. Revelatory visions were infrequent. Um, and I think as we've been studying the book, when you consider the behavior of the priests, Hopni and Phineas, um, that we've seen over the last few weeks, the behavior of the nation in general, um, those first few verses, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, that kind of describes Israel at this time. I think we can understand why God is rarely speaking um, to the nation. Why should God speak when he is ignored? Um, and, and I think, I'm mindful again, uh, we're celebrating 150 years. You look at our country and our culture and our churches, uh, and I think we're living in a Darth, you might say, of the Word of God. Um, we do not value the Word properly. We don't preach it properly. We don't study it properly. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised when, in general, in our nation today, uh, it feels as if God is silent. Um, because why, again, should he speak when we will not listen? Um, Amos chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a, uh, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I, I 
again, I believe that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, and we need to be mindful of the fact that God may withhold his word from those who refuse to receive it or obey it. Uh, Mark 7, 8. Um, Christ said, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That is one of his most consistent, deepest condemnations of the Pharisees um, when he came and, and dwelt among us. And, and I think our culture is walking down the same path. Why, I mean, really, honestly, why sh are we surprised um, that there are so very few overt manifestations of God's power um, and grace, whether it's in healings or revivals or whatever it may be. We refuse to obey the truth we've been given. We ignore the light already within our grasp, and so God is silent. doesn't mean God is not here. It doesn't mean God is not uh, living and active and sovereign and, and all those things, but my point is that when we do not pursue God, at some point you can expect there to be uh, a withdrawal um, of His Spirit and His power, and I think that's what we're experiencing. Now, fortunately for the nation of Israel, in this text, God is raising up a special young man to lead them back into obedience to Jehovah. Um, and this is going to record a, a very special moment in the life of Samuel. Um, again, one that we're fairly familiar with. And I think it's a great example to us as to how we should respond. Um, maybe there is a gap. Maybe God has pulled back um, from a sleeping church. But you know what? If God speaks, we want to hear. Um, we want to listen, we want to obey, we want to respond, um, and maybe we can break that cycle. So why don't you stand with me out of reverence, respect for the Word of God. Let's read 1 Samuel 3, um, verses 1 through 14 together. Uh, 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could could not see was lying down in his own place the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was verse 4 then the Lord called Samuel and he said here I am and ran to Eli and said here I am for you called me but he said I did not call lie down again so he went and lay down and the Lord called again Samuel and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said here I am for you called me but he said I did not call my son lie down again now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Verse 8, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Verse 10, And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. You may be seated.
Now, we just have two very simple sections this morning. We have good news and we have bad news. And we start with the good news, okay? And, and, and I consider this to be good news because here we are in the midst of Israel's rebellion, and you might say the rejection of God's word, in the midst of the priest wickedness that we've considered, and in the middle of all that, God shows the nation grace by having prepared and now called Samuel um, to minister in his service. Um, we've seen him positioned for this moment, but I don't think we can take it for granted. Um, I think too often we assume that we're owed a lot more grace than we're owed. Uh, Israel did not deserve this. Um, this is not how their actions played out. Um, this is the grace of God, and we have to keep that in mind. Um, Psalm 74, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. Uh, that's really how they are at this point. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? Um, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. You know, that's kind of an imprecatory prayer, um, praying for God to intervene, to act on the nation's behalf, to judge their enemies. Well, God's about to judge. Um, he's about to move to destroy. But the bad news that we'll have to consider is that his target is going to be Israel's own priests. It's going to be those who should have um, been preaching and teaching a reverence for the Word of God and the ways of God. Um, he's not going to move against the enemies. He's going to move against them. Now, again, that's the bad news. We'll get to that soon enough, but let's consider the good news with some detail here. Um, we're talking about God's call for Samuel. Um, we see the moment of the call here in verses um, 1 through 3. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord uh, where the ark of God was. A few uh, details, you might say, that helps establish this moment um, a little clearer for us. Um, first, I find it curious um, that there's a, a phrase missing, or at least a word missing, as the Lord refers to. Um, it says, Samuel was ministering to the Lord, in the presence of Eli. Every time prior to this, when Eli has been mentioned, he's been mentioned as the priest. He's the, again, the implication has been he's the high priest. He's the one in charge. Well, um, if you go back to like chapter 2, verse 11, then Elkaniah went to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. So Samuel's ministering to the Lord, but Eli, the priest, is always there. Now as we come to chapter 3, Eli is no longer referred to as the priest. We've already seen God prophesy judgment on his family. He's going to come and do that again. I, I think certainly you might say, well, this is just a lack of redundancy. God's just not going to keep saying priest, priest, priest. I, I believe it's foreshadowing that Eli's days as priest are numbered. Um, now, again, the emphasis is on Samuel. Uh, this is the fifth reference in this, uh, the opening three chapters uh, of the book um, to his service to the Lord. Um, and so it's clear that he's been functioning as an apprentice priest. Now, again, it emphasizes here he does not yet know the Lord, um, but he's been working in the tabernacle. He's been learning uh, how to serve. Um, just because he doesn't know the Lord doesn't mean he can't do some of those things. And most scholars would say that his age here is around the age 12. Okay, He's about to become a man according to Jewish custom. 
In the background of all that, we see that Eli's eyes have grown dim. Um, I think that is kind of symbolic of um, the nation and its own spirituality. Um, their, their eyesight is dim. They're not responding to the light. They do not see very well. Um, the word of the Lord was rare um, because of its leaders and its priests and its people that refused to hear and to see and to obey. Now, as, if you're really honest, as we consider these first few chapters, all we've seen Eli the high priest do is speak, hear, and sit down. Um, he hasn't done much. He's certainly not led the nation in any sort of way. He doesn't inspire a whole lot of hope. Um, but fortunately, again, God's going to move with some grace in this text. Uh, we do see something positive in these three verses. It mentions that um, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, I, I think that's a practical statement. It's letting us know that it's nighttime. Uh, the lamp of God burned all during the night. It was quenched in the morning when the sun rose um, at daybreak. Um, but I also think there's, again, it's one of those statements that just it feels very symbolic. I think it's reminding us that, um, you know what, as, as long as the lamp uh, of God is a light, as long as we had, have the Word of God, um, there's a chance. Um, the light has not gone out completely. And so thankfully, it is still burning. Um, that's a very practical takeaway from this. It's burning there um, in the entrance to the most holy place. Um, there's still hope for Israel. Um, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand um, forever. That should be constantly in our minds as a church. Um, God's been good for 150 years. He's going to continue to be good, but so much of it comes down to our reliance upon His Word. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so um, theologian John Woodhouse, in looking at this, has, has put it this way so simply. He says, the lamp of God is still burning. Uh, the tabernacle of the Lord is still standing, and the ark of God is in its place. And so there's hope in Israel. And again, I, I think for us, we live in a dark world. There's always bad things happening. Um, but I know this, the Word of God is still just as true today as it was when this church began 150 years ago. Amen? Uh, the, the Spirit of God, he, He's alive and well, and if you have a personal relationship with Him, uh, He's the sign and seal of your salvation, and He's taken up residence in your life. Uh, God is on His throne. Um, God is sufficient. He is omnipotent, omniscient, all those big terms. God is just as good as today as He's ever been. We can rest in that. And so we just have to keep doing and what we know to do. We have to trust in the unerring word of God, and we have to know that just as he moves in grace in this text, he can move in grace uh, in our church, in our, our community, in our nation, uh, in the world. Um, he can do what he chooses to do. And so here we are in, in 1 Samuel 3. Israel still has hope, and it's about to be fulfilled through Samuel. And that thought brings us to the, the last detail of this text, I would say. We find Samuel, uh, the text refers to him as, as lying down um, in the temple of the Lord. Now, that is a, a simplistic way. Um, the, the text really literally means tabernacle. The temple has not yet been built, not the temple of Solomon's day that most of us think of. But we should understand the inference. It's, it's not telling us that literally he slept in the room where the ark was, the holy place, uh, it, but likely in a room that was adjacent to it. Um, but he's also sleeping close to Eli, I, I believe is implied, because Eli, bluntly, he, he's old, he's fat, and he's nearly blind. 
If he needs anything in the middle of the night, I think Samuel is accustomed to getting it for him. So he's lying within earshot of the, the high priest. It's very likely that these are the only two um, within the tabernacle grounds during the night. Um, Samuel, in that sense, has placed himself at the disposal of his master. Um, but he's about to be confused by the identity uh, of the one who's calling. Um, his true master, I would argue, is about to summon him. So we move to the manner of the call. Um, now, uh, we're going to consider these verses in detail in a moment, but let me make some sweeping generalizations that, again, I think apply to all of us here today. A lot of scholars focus in on 1 Samuel 3 and the fact that Samuel um, has what we would call a hearing ear. Um, God speaks and he hears him. And I think that's a, a very fair takeaway and a very fair emphasis. God's word at this time has been neglected by the nation. We've seen that. Um, it's been rejected by its priests and its people. But Samuel is ready to hear. And that really sets the stage for his life and his later ministry. And so I think we should probably ask as we enter into this text, do we have an ear to hear? Um, you probably hopefully remember uh, the parable from Luke chapter 8 um, that Jesus told, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And those are those who heard the word and um, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and all those things did not disrupt it bearing fruit. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. God's word is still living and active. I think it's... Its fruit is determined by our willingness to receive it, to hear it, to respond to it. And so God's Word calls us to service and submission. And the good news of this text is that Samuel was willing to listen and he was ready to obey. And he's transformed by this call and his interaction with God. What about you and what about me? I think that's the way we have to kind of frame this. Now, we can also be honest about it, though, as, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, and as we pick this text up and, and look at Samuel, we've got to be willing to admit he hasn't arrived. He, he, it tells us he doesn't even know the Lord at this point. And yet he had a, a willingness to hear from God and to receive truth. Okay, And so um, he has a lot that he needs to learn. You could probably critically say, well, what's Eli been doing? I mean, Eli, the high priest, has not yet led Samuel to a personal relationship with God at this point. It's a little bit curious, maybe. Um, but then again, his other two boys are not so good at all. So um, maybe he's doing better with Samuel than, than he has his own two sons. But uh, one way or the other, um, let's break down what happens here. We, we see confusion. Uh, verses uh, 4 through 7. The Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am for you called me. Now again, it's very obvious what's happening here. Um, God speaks to him audibly. Um, certainly there's no implication that uh, he's taken on any sort of form at this point. So he just hears a voice. He assumes, um, like I think most of us would in his situation, um, there's only one other human uh, nearby in the tabernacle. It's got to be Eli. So he runs to Eli and says, Here I am for you called me. But Eli said, I, I did not call. Uh, lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. I think if we're going to be specific about this text, we would have to say that Samuel is probably like a lot of folks sitting in churches on a day like today. Uh, they may know of the Lord, but they do not know the Lord personally. Um, and so, when God speaks, 
um, because there was no longer a, a tradition of such interactions in the nation or in the tabernacle, um, I, I think he responds practically. It's the only level in which he knows to react. He assumed what all of us would have assumed. He, he assumes his master Eli is calling to him. And so he runs and says, here I am, um, for you called me. Now, the good news is that's a good response regardless of who's you know, starting the conversation. Here I am. Um, how can I help you, so to speak? It was Abraham's response um, when God summoned him to Mount Moriah um, in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. He said, here I am. Okay, So it's a good response. But despite Samuel's exuberant obedience, the text even tells us he ran to Eli. Okay, He roused himself immediately from sleep. At the sound of the voice, he runs to his master. But he doesn't understand that he's hearing from the Lord. I think we have to see again the graciousness of God here that he repeats the call. Not once, not twice, uh, not even three times. He, he repeats it at least four times. And the fourth time we'll see he goes above and beyond simply speaking to him. He pursues Samuel even when Samuel, let's be honest, is a bit clueless in this text. Now, let me frame it this way. Does that sound to anyone here this morning like your salvation experience? Anybody willing to admit you kind of got saved against, despite yourself, against your own will almost? Anybody get pursued by God and convicted by the Spirit? Anybody experience a situation where God just continued to throw truth and the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of you almost relentlessly until you were willing to finally listen and respond and obey? Anybody? You know, I, I, the reality is, if you do not characterize your salvation that way, you're a little bit naive. Now, you might have been saved as a child, and maybe it didn't quite come across that way, but the reality is, all of us are fortunate that God continues to pursue us when we, in our obstinacy, we, we run from Him. We, um, we hide behind our sin and the deeds of the flesh, and we refuse to listen. So this is a simple picture, I think, of, again, how most of us were when God began to interact with us and really to pursue us with the gospel, because no one needs to ever be confused. You did not get saved because you're special, or you're someone unusual or you're smarter than everybody else you and I if we're saved and redeemed we were saved because God in his grace pursued us despite our sin uh, Romans 3 we've shared this verse a lot lately for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but we should always read on and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No matter what's happened to Samuel to get him to this point, and there's been a lot of extraordinary things, and his, his mother is a godly lady, and she's prayed, and God has responded, and his birth has been miraculous. However you want to break it all down, at this point in time, let's be honest, God pursues Samuel, not because of Samuel, but because of the grace of God. He pursues him. He has a, a plan for his life. He has a purpose for him. He wants to know Samuel personally. It doesn't start with Samuel. It starts with God. Romans 6, 23, For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Romans 5, 8 through 10, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
Now, we've discussed this before, and we don't have time for a treatise on it, but there are certainly differences in, in the manner, you might say, of salvation in the Old Testament era and in the New Testament era. Um, simply put, that they were saved looking forward to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I believe um, it doesn't overtly walk through it all, but I believe at some point Samuel comes to a place where he understands someday God is going to atone for his sin, and he trusts in that, and he believes in that, and that's his moment of salvation. He, he trusts the um, the word of the Father and all that. We're saved looking back on something that we know has already occurred. Okay, now again, the act of faith is much the same one looking forward, one looking back. We're all trusting in God's provision for our sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, although this text does not overtly describe Samuel's salvation moment, I think we have to see what it does say overtly as the text begins. He did not yet know the Lord, and then after this point, he's the, the prophet, you might even say the judge. He's the, the nation's intermediary between them and God, and so clearly he's going to walk out of here, I believe, a, a saved believer in who God is. He has a personal relationship with him. It's more than implied. But hear me when I say this again. Despite his mother's devout prayers to this point, despite his, you might argue, miraculous conception, she had been barren for years, despite his committal to the priesthood at an early age, despite having been raised in the tabernacle, having a greater access to the most holy place in the entire nation of Israel, despite his service to the Lord that he was already engaged in, and his faithful service to Eli, the Lord's high priest, he was lost as we walk into this text. You don't get saved by coming to church. Now, hopefully you get saved while you're here, but coming here doesn't save you. You don't get saved by tithing. You don't get saved because of your mama's prayers. You don't get saved by any religious act you do. You must make a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Period. Eli um, had... I think he has some good interaction with Samuel, but the reality is Samuel's salvation has still not yet occurred, but God is pursuing him and wooing him, and despite everything that's occurred up to this point, he still has to personally surrender uh, to Christ or endure judgment. And we never know if we're going to get one call or two calls or three or four. Proverbs 29.1, He who's often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Hebrews 3.15, as it said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. 2 Corinthians 6, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Friends, there is a time to be saved while it's still called today. Do you know him? And I think sometimes we, we read the Word of God as if, you know, this is just what had to happen. What if Samuel refused to listen to God in this text? What if Samuel chose to be like the rest of the nation and Hopney and Phineas and, and didn't respond to the wooing of God? Now, I personally believe God has a plan B. We don't know what it is because Samuel thankfully responds. But if Samuel had rejected God, if Samuel had embraced his own free will and despised the word of the Lord, God would have raised up someone else. Your salvation is not guaranteed. You have to respond. But we press on in the text. We see, at least for a moment, I believe, a shimmer of godliness from Eli here. 
Um, he is a so-called man of God. At times it comes out, I guess. Um, he's the closest thing Israel had to a high priest or even a judge at this point in time. We see realization. The Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Now, I don't know what's fair to Eli. Should he have figured it out before now? Um, I don't know. Um, we're not there. We don't know what he's hearing. We don't know what's happening. Um, but at least he's not completely deaf or blind. It dawns on him at some point that maybe this is really God moving. And, and I, I think the truth begins to penetrate. Um, Eli has long since ceased expecting God to, uh, to say anything to him. Uh, he's heard from God once in the relative past. The prophet came and delivered uh, a word of judgment for he and his family. And so I think Eli has kind of written God off at this point in dealing with him. But I think what we're seeing here is a reversal in leadership from Eli to Samuel. And I want to give at least Eli credit for in this moment, he doesn't express any jealousy. He doesn't panic that God's speaking to the boy and not to him. Um, but he encourages Samuel, go. Uh, tell the Lord that you're listening. You want to hear from him. And so I'm going to give him credit in a sense that this is uh, there's wisdom here and there's some humility here. Isaiah 3, 4 prophesies of a moment much like this and I'll make boys their princes and, and infants shall rule over them. Well, Eli's I think swallowing some pride here and in that sense he does well. And we see instruction next. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. If he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, historically, many have said that this is a, a model prayer for those who want to um, hear and follow God's will, and I, I can't argue with that. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I, I, um, you know, it, it's a little probably silly coming from me because you have to listen to me on Sundays, but I certainly pray it's the attitude of your heart. When you come in here on a Sunday morning, you're ready to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. You can add, despite that bumbling pastor who's going to preach your word. The, the, the reality is the word of God is sufficient. Amen? And whether I'm handling it or someone else is handling it, there's value in preaching and teaching and studying the word of God. And so that should be our hearts as we walk in here. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I think Eli gives him very good advice here. Um, again, Eli hasn't heard from the Lord much. He's heard from one prophet in the recent past that's been bad news. Our visions from the Lord are rare. We've seen all of that. But it dawns on him that God is speaking to Samuel, and he gives Samuel good advice and tells him to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And again, this is that transition that's taking place in the priesthood, and I'm going to give Eli credit for not pushing back on it. But last and not least, let's consider the humanity of Samuel, what he's experiencing in this moment. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'd be ready to trade places with him. Okay, think about this. He's likely sleeping in some sort of room adjacent to the place where the lamp of God is, and beyond that is the ark of God and the most holy place. This is where in the nation's history, Jehovah God has spoken to Moses from the Shekinah glory above the, the ark of the covenant. Okay, and I would guess that's where the voice has come from. He's assumed it's coming from Eli elsewhere, but now I have a feeling it's dawning on him. It's not been Eli who's talking. So now it's dark. 
probably dark in the room he's in. The lamp of God is in another room, so there is a glimmer of candlelight, you might say, or oil lamp. Um, blind Eli won't even get out of bed and accompany him. He just tells him to go back to his cot and lay down on a blanket and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Oh, Jehovah God must be talking to you. Go back into that dark room near the Holy of Holies and just talk back. Anybody see why I would be nervous in his shoes? And again, remember, it says he did not even know the Lord at this point. So maybe he doesn't know enough to be absolutely nervous, but I suspect it's dawning on him. And remember, again, the context. The priests are committing adultery on the grounds of the tabernacle. They're, uh, they're taking, stealing portions of the sacrifices that were to be reserved for God. And now God is audibly speaking to this little boy from the most holy place in Israel. I'd be nervous. I probably would have choked on the words, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. But um, he manages to get it out. And now we consider what he actually hears. And this is the, the bad news. Not bad news for Samuel, um, but it is bad news. Now, before we break that down, though, we return briefly to the idea that I think is so crucial to all this. Samuel, at least, was, was teachable. He, he was willing to hear, which is a requirement if we're going to hear from God. We see the prerequisite here. And the Lord came, and this is where the change is, and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. God in His grace approaches Samuel yet again, but in even stronger fashion um, that we've seen prior to this. We read the text literally. God has, has just said Samuel. He's not gone. Samuel, Samuel, which in God's Word is always a point of emphasis when He repeats someone's name twice. We'll see that again in a moment. But this time, it's not just that God spoke, um, whether uh, from above the Ark of the Covenant and Shekinah glory, however the voice may have been emanating before. Um, we just know it came audibly. This time it tells us that He comes and stands near God or near Samuel. Now, most theologians uh, would call this a theophany, um, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, and I would agree with that. That tends to be um, what we can trust is happening when we see any indication in the Old Testament that God has shown up. Because this is what you have to know. Here's good theology for you. If Jehovah God were to come and stand beside Samuel, Samuel and all of Israel and most of the world would have been consumed in that moment. Okay, You cannot stand to be in the presence of the full glory of God. Okay, So whatever is happening in this text, we must know that it's a, it's a manifestation of a type that man can withstand. Okay, That's the true glory of God. And we, we may not be able to comprehend that, but that is why when we see something in the Old Testament such as this, we're going to assume that it's God in His graciousness allowing Christ, the Son, to take on some sort of human, human form in order to reveal himself personally to Samuel. Okay? Now, God has um, spoken to him multiple times. He said, Samuel, Samuel. And it's no good hearing from God if we will not obey or, or respond. Um, I think we have to see the contrast here. You know, Hopney's not hearing from God. Phineas is not hearing from God. Eli's no longer hearing from God. But Samuel is. God speaks his name twice. Samuel, Samuel. He does this throughout Scripture. And that uh, Genesis 22, when God was calling to test Abraham at Mount Moriah, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Uh, that's when God was providing the ram as the substitute to get his attention. He stops him. Abraham said, here I am. Uh, Genesis 46, 2, when he calls Israel or Jacob um, to move his family to Egypt the first time. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, 
Jacob. And he said, here I am. Uh, the burning bush, when he called Moses, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, th this is the way God um, seems to call his servants. Acts chapter 9, um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here he calls Samuel. The shepherd, I think we should understand, knows his sheep. Uh, even in this sense, a young man like Samuel. Even someone like you and me. John 10, 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hears voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. It's our response that makes the difference, I believe. Now, some are confused by the fact in this text that Samuel omits one word from Eli's instructions. And you may remember that Eli said, Say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Well, Samuel does not say, Lord. He just says, Speak, for your servant hears. I think that makes perfect sense. Because as we entered this text, we, we were told explicitly that he does not yet know the Lord personally. I think he understood uh, kind of reverentially and respectfully that he could not yet call the Lord Lord, because he didn't have that relationship with him. But I think this is the moment in which that is changing. Uh, again, without so many words shared, I think we're to read this as the moment in which Samuel comes to know God personally. Uh, Romans 10, 13, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, uh, they will be saved. I think that is happening here. Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you've not known that exchange is happening here. Samuel comes to know the Lord, and then God gives him a revelation or a message. And that's the bad news. It's also a reminder that when God speaks, what matters most is not that he's speaking, it's what he says. And that's where we've gone to sleep on the Word of God. Let's break down what he says. And we see the punishment here. Last thing, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That's just a way of saying it. It's so bad, it's like their, their ears are quivering. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. It's unlikely that Samuel knew what the prophet of God had told Eli in the previous chapter um, that we studied. Um, but it, as God makes clear here, what God has said previously, it's as good as done. Um, all this prophecy here is, is past tense. It's only the timing that's yet to be revealed. But it, it's clear. Uh, God briefly restates the, the crimes of Eli's sons. He, he sums them up with two powerful words, calls them blasphemy um, and iniquity. And then he really points out Eli's culpability in it. Um, he says, and he did not restrain them. So Eli is responsible as the high priest, as the man of God. He had a responsibility both as a father, but also as the nation's spiritual leader to preserve and protect the most holy things of the Lord, and he failed. And again, I don't want to make this too much about the 150th year anniversary, but I'm very mindful that if I'm not emphasizing this book in this place week in and week out, I am not doing my job. It's a pretty simple job. I believe Eli had one very much the same, um, to preserve and protect the most holy things of God. And so uh, we, we see where um, God has 
told Eli what's going to happen. Now he tells Samuel what's going to happen. We know Eli, he spoke sternly to his boys on at least one occasion. But why did he not remove them from the service? Why did he not punish them? Why did he do nothing but speak? Clearly their behavior and his lack of action had brought a curse down upon their house. Again, that euphemism of everyone who hears it will tingle. It's not going to be good. And then you, you don't want to miss the, the sacrificial kind of atoning language that's used in this judgment of God in verse 14. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. In the priestly system, it was understood that uh, they were human and there was going to be inadvertent sin um, because they had a sin nature and on more than one occasion they would stumble in their holiness and so there had to be a way of, of seeking forgiveness for that. Leviticus 4.3 says, if, the anointed priest, if it's the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he's committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. But see, the sin of Eli's house was a different matter entirely. Um, there, there could be no atoning for it. Uh, I listen to Numbers 15. But the person who does anything with a high hand, and I believe that's Hopney and Phineas, whether he is a native or a sojourner, uh, whether uh, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he's despised the word. We've seen this. Blasphemy, iniquity, despising the word of God. He's broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. There'll be no atoning for that. Eli and his sons have served the most holy place of Israel and the Lord, and they have willfully sinned, they've blasphemed, they've scorned the things of God. And so God quite clearly says that they have so despised his sacrifice and offering that there's, there's no longer a possibility for those things to have uh, efficacy on their behalf. And I know that's a big church word, but it just means that they have crossed a horrific line and there's no coming back from it. There's no sacrifice that can atone for their sin at this point. Only punishment remains. Now, I know there are a lot of differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament dispensations, okay? God's covenant with Israel was conditional. I think that has a part to do with the language here. Um, while the New Covenant, we need to celebrate this because this is grace, the New Covenant through the shed blood of Jesus is unconditional. Thankfully, there is no sin for which the shed blood of Jesus Christ is not sufficient for atonement. You hear me? Now, here's the thing, though. Just because there is the possibility of forgiveness does not mean your sin has been forgiven. As we've talked about, you need to hear the Word of God. You need to respond to the Word of God. You need to bring your sin before God and ask Him to forgive you and redeem you. It starts with taking responsibility for it. It, it, it ends with asking for forgiveness and, and, and redemption. See, God is the righteous judge, and for everyone there is a time, there is a day, there is a moment of judgment coming. If we ignore the Lord, if we refuse to repent, if we do not listen to the message of salvation offered to us through Christ while the door to grace is open, only judgment remains. That's why Jesus said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. We have to personally respond. And again, I believe this text is, is calling us to, you want to be like Hopney? You want to be like Phineas? You want to be like Eli? Or you want to be like Samuel? You want to have a hearing ear? You want to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Have you done business with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I pray you have. If you haven't, 
Now's a great opportunity to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So as our musicians come, we're going to give you that opportunity. And as a church, again, as a simple takeaway for 150 years, it's not about any man, it's not about any woman, it's not about anything other than the fact that God is gracious. He's been really, really good to us. And this church will only stand, I believe, in the years to come, so long as we remain faithful to the inspired and errant Word of God. May we hear, may we obey. Let's stand and let's respond to Him.